First Bible reading is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 6 to 20, and that can be found on page 184 of the Pew Bibles. Chapter 8, starting at verse 6. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God, for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. The second Bible reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 18 verses 18 to 30, and that can be found on page 1051 of the Pew Bibles. Chapter 18, starting at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister, if I haven't met you before. Um, it's, uh, this morning is a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and um, I look forward to doing that with you. Uh, if you're joining us after a couple of weeks, uh, or perhaps even you just weren't here last week, you're not aware, we are in a new series that we're reflecting on. It's, it's, uh, we try to spend the first couple of weeks of the new term after the Easter break, thinking about an area of the Christian life, we're thinking about our wealth and our possessions. Uh, and we've chosen this topic because how you use your money is very important. Uh, someone asked me during the week, actually, whether they're aware that we're, we're thinking about doing some development work on the property that's vacant, and they asked me whether this is like a preparation for a the development, I assure you it is not. I said to them, actually, when we're fundraising, you'll know we're fundraising. Um, this is not about that. This is a, a deliberate decision to focus on a part of our life that is very important for a Christian and cannot be excluded from our overall thinking about discipleship. Uh, Billy Graham, you may have heard of him. He was a, a minister who uh, travelled the world. He had all these big gatherings. They called them crusades, maybe Nowadays, not the name you'd give them, but they were these extraordinary movements throughout the world where people came and heard, heard about the Christian message and hundreds of thousands of people became Christians over the course of his ministry. He said this, he said, if a person gets his attitude to money straight, it will help him straighten out almost every other area in his life. This is a pretty extraordinary statement. He's attributing to money, uh, perhaps it's like the rudder of your life, he says. It's this thing which directs your life. If you get it right, then it will shape pretty much everything else in your life. Now, of course, Billy Graham, if you, if you ever encountered him, some of you may have even gone to one of his uh, great meetings in the 70s, uh, Billy, Billy Graham was a guy who saw the importance of the Bible and prayer. It was fundamental to his ministry. He's not saying it's more important than the Bible and prayer, but he's just saying the way we live out our Christian life in relation to our money Will, will shape everything else. Money is very important, and our attitude to it is very important. But why is it, is the question. And in one word, it is complexity. Money, and our attitude to money, and the Bible's teaching on money, is extremely complex. It's not simple. You can't summarise your attitude to money and how you should respond to it with one word or one sentence. Money is very complex. And we see that in the two passages that we chose uh, to have read for us 
for this morning. One is from Deuteronomy. It's the start um, of a speech that Moses is giving. He gives a few speeches in Deuteronomy to, to the Israelites. This is one of them. He's giving them a speech, preparing them. They're, they're on the edge of the River Jordan. They're about to cross over into this promised land that God has given. He's preparing them before he leaves them as their great uh, leader. And see what he says. He says, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. This is the land that God has promised for thousands of years to his people. He started promising this back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And finally, here is the culmination of all God's promises. It's this land that they're about to cross into. It's a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. This is a land of extreme prosperity. When you have eaten and satisfied, he says, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. This is good not just because it's fertile land, but it is good because it's land that God has given them. And if you were here last week, this was a large portion of the message from last week was an acknowledgement actually that our wealth, our possessions, the things that we have are things given by God and start from the fundamental position of being good. They're actually good things. Our money, our possessions, our wealth, the things that we interact with, these are good. And you see this being picked up by, by Moses in this speech. Uh, and so there's, there's, a, there's, there's a starting point, but you see a complexity to what Moses has to say, reflecting the complexity of the Bible's vision and understanding of, of money as well, as, as we go on into the next verse, because he then says, Be careful. There's this great thing that God has given you. It's fundamentally good. And yet, this whole speech is a warning to the Israelites. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. He's saying, money is good, but it's dangerous. Money is good, but it's dangerous. And if you, um, if you missed it, it was in the Luke passage as well, the second reading. This encounter between a rich young ruler and Jesus. And here is this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with great promise, actually. He asks a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems to be someone who complies with the law, the Israelite law. And yet he leaves disappointed. And Jesus says in verse 24, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. We have this storyline in the Bible that um, all the possessions and all the things that we, we have in our life are good gifts from God. And yet we have this developing storyline in the Bible that also says that they're extremely dangerous. They can actually impede us. Moses says, be careful. There's a real complexity. Now the question we have is, how can that be possible? How can something that's good be dangerous for us? Don't they kind of cancel each other out? If something is dangerous, then surely it's not good. When I was 18, after I left school, I lived with my father. He lived in the Hills District. And now there's like a Northwest Rail Link that, you know, means you can get from basically his house to Chatswood in like 15 minutes, right? But back then, it was like, it was like the sticks, and we, we, we lived in a really nice house, but if you missed the one bus that left at the top of the hour, there wasn't another one coming for an hour. You could walk to the station, but it would take you 45 minutes to get there. And of course, as an 18-year-old, this was, 
this rubbed against all my desires. You know, my friends are out. And to go out at night, I had to walk 45... I remember I catching the train back one night and there's no bus, so it took me 50 minutes to walk from Hill Station home in the middle of the night. Then my dad very kindly uh, bought us a second car. And suddenly, like, I could do what all other 18, 19-year-olds wanted to do. i go out and see my friends on the weekend. But it wasn't even just good because I kind of... It opened up my social life for me. I actually got to go to church with, I wasn't a Christian at the time, I wasn't a believer. Uh, but my friends went to a church in Croydon and so I went along with them and I had a car so I actually could drive. I could always get myself there. It was such a good thing, right? Then when I was 21, I drove the car into a light pole. I was like 10 centimetres away from dying. I fell asleep at the wheel, went straight into the pole, full speed. You know, something can be very good for you and at the same time, dangerous for you. As they always tell young guys, you don't have a fully formed frontal lobe, so you don't understand risk. And the key to driving a car is understanding it's dangerous, right? You have to understand it, its power, its potential danger for you in order to use it well and for it to remain good for you. And it's a bit like that with money. Money is good and yet dangerous at the same time. And, and if you don't fully understand its danger, it will destroy you. That's where Moses finishes his, his speech about entering the front. He says, if you, if you forget the Lord, he will destroy you. He will destroy you. So the question is, why is money dangerous? This is, a, this is the question, I guess, that comes to us if we say, yeah, money is da- it has, these, it has this complexity. Why is it dangerous? And I think we see it emerge here. Uh, firstly, there we go. See what, see what Moses says in his speech. He says, When your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, in other words, when you become wealthy, right, then your heart will become proud. See, money is very powerful because it has the ability to reveal the true state of our hearts. The problem here is not the herds and the flocks. They're still good, but they're powerful. And they have the capacity to reveal the true heart of Israel, the true heart of Israel. And that is a heart which has a desire for other things apart from God. This is the constant warning in the Old Testament it's, it's called idolatry. Now, when we think of idols, we think of little things shaped by gold and put on altars. And, and in Israelite time, that, that often was the case. But in some ways, they're just a great symbol, actually, of how money or wealth or possessions, gold or silver, gives expression to the deeper heart issue, which is that you're shifting your trust, your your, uh, Israel's trust and its, its obedience and its, its love from the God who's revealed himself to them to this other thing, this thing that's glittering. So money is dangerous or is actually certainly powerful because it has the ability to reveal our heart's deepest desires. Now, you don't, most people wouldn't have a little gold idol or statue in their house. But the concept of idolatry resonates even now. Here's what uh, Tim Keller, the um, 
American pastor in his great book, Counterfeit God, says, as he takes the, the general principle of idolatry and applies it to our context, he says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to you what only God can give. There's a typo there. Anything you seek to give to you what only God can give. It's a thing that sits on the edge of your life which you've moved to the centre. There's many things like that. And money has the capacity to reveal them. I mean, uh, it might be as something as good as the happiness of your family and your children. That's not a bad thing. It's not meant to be the central thing in your life. But if that's your idol, that becomes the thing that fills your imagination, that drives your efforts, your energies. It might be the respect of your colleagues. That's not a bad thing, again. But if it's moved from the periphery of your life to the centre of it, it becomes the driving, the driving ambition for you, the thing for which you live and for which you die. And money has a real ability to reveal this, what your idols are. Look at the Luke passage. The Luke passage, this guy comes to Jesus, he asks a great question, he he says, uh, Jesus says, you, need to, you know the law, here they are. He basically refers to the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the man very boldly says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Maybe that's true. We don't really know. And Jesus doesn't really point out, you know, whatever hypocritical moment of his life doesn't align with that statement. Instead, he does something else. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. I think what Jesus is doing, he's just, he just realises that money, by bringing money into the question, his possessions, his wealth, which he's accrued, and putting it on the line, he's discerning the true nature of the man's heart. See? His attitude, his wealth, is revealing who he really loves. There he is, standing before Jesus, claiming to love God, but when money is brought into the equation, and he's asked whether he'd cast it off, his true love is really revealed. It's not God, and it's certainly not the Lord Jesus, who he calls a good teacher. There's a principle at play here. What you spend your money on reveals what or whom you love. What you spend your money on reveals what or whom you love. I remember coming to Willoughby, um, and within a week of moving into the suburb, the thing you know, really struck me about the shops around here? So many kitchen shops, kitchen renovation shops. This is so bizarre. Willoughby's like this beautiful leafy suburb. You think, why would you have these like kitchen renovation shops just all the way down Penshurst Road? I came from the Inner West, right? In the Inner West, whenever there is a shop front vacant, someone fills it with a cafe. So every corner has a cafe. You don't have to walk more than 500 metres to get a good coffee in the Inner West come to the Willoughby, I cannot find a cafe. Well, I can, but it's like a kilometre away. It's so hard. Someone came to visit us the other day for a meeting. They said, oh, I stopped trying to, I couldn't find a coffee shop. This really struck me. I was very perplexed by this. I thought, you know, people are wealthy in the inner west, people are wealthy in the Willoughby. What is that about? It only occurred to me later, in the inner west, you see, the great dream, the idol, so to speak, of the inner west is lifestyle. What you want to do is at 10.30 on a Saturday morning be sitting on a milk crate 
sipping your oatmeal latte, enjoying the sun and reading the paper. No wonder there's so many cafes. In Willoughby, what do you want to do? You want your kids around the, the kitchen bench. You want to be cooking up a great meal. You want their friends over. Of course there's kitchen shops here. What you spend your money on reveals what you really value. So what do you spend your money on? What do you spend your money on? Where is your wealth going? And what is your wealth revealing about you? Now that, that in itself is not a bad thing about money either, is it? I mean, it, it's diagnostic tool. But there, there is actually a real danger to it and it starts to be revealed because Moses in his speech, just kind of like, he's foretelling the reality of exactly what will happen to the Israelites when they cross over. He says it a few times actually. You can, he said it already, I think chapter 6 of Deuteronomy has an almost identical speech where Moses... Because it's just unfortunately a reality. He knows God has shown him already the reality when they cross over, what this wealth will do to them, right? Because of their hearts. And the thing about money is it feeds your idol. It feeds it. So he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. See, money manages to deceive them to think that the thing they value most is true. And for the Israelites, you know what their great desire was? Freedom. They really wanted to be free. For 400 years, they'd been slaves. Their great desire was to choose their own path, to be in charge of their destiny. And their wealth just fed that. It just reaffirmed that for them. Both that that was possible and that it was good and that they didn't need God. And, and our wealth can do the same thing. Let me give you a, a worked example. Imagine that your idol is a desire for happy children. I'm, I use this because this is kind of my life space at the moment, right? Now, having happy kids is not a bad thing. Having sad kids, is, that's a bad thing, right? Having happy kids, good thing. But if that's like the centre of your life, if that's the measurement of your worth and value, like am I doing the right thing, then it's going, to really, it's going to really stuff you up. Because your kids are going to get sad. My kids get sad. And, and if, if you... Money, you'll bring money to bear on that. You'll spend the money on them. You'll throw money at it. You might, it might be as inane as just buying them heaps of stuff. Toys. Technology. Experiences. You think, my kid's sad, I'll take him to Europe. My kid's sad. I'll throw everything. If your kid's happy, you, 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 you'll put them in the most expensive school in Sydney. And you, you will pour it. And you know what will happen, actually, is they'll probably get happier. I mean, what kid is not happy on their birthday? They've received copious. It doesn't matter if it's like a $10 toy from Kmart. They're happy, right? I mean, five, five days' time, it's broken, and you're thinking about throwing it out. But at that time, they're happy. But you realise, oh my gosh, I've got to work harder. That $15,000 family holiday to Europe doesn't just pay for itself. That $35,000 a year private school education doesn't pay for itself. And so you'll have to work harder. But then your kids won't see you anymore. 
and they'll get sad. I mean, it's just, it's just one example, but it's an example of how wealth feeds a desire which cannot be fed. Right? And you, we find ourselves caught in this, this circle. You look at the rich young ruler. What happens, though? When he meets Jesus, confronted by his desire, confronted by the need to lay down his wealth and his possessions, he's before Jesus. He stands on the precipice of eternity. He's meeting the King of Kings, but he leaves sad. And the great, the great and unfortunate truth of money is that it, feed, it has the capacity to feed our deepest desires in ways that are never deeply satisfying at all. Never deeply satisfying. Money has the capacity to enslave you to an unsatisfying master. That's why money is dangerous, you see. That's why it's dangerous. It can be really good. It can be really good if it's used the right way. And in fact, its danger is understood. But if not, this is where you end up. Wealthy but enslaved. Enriched with material possessions, but poor in spirit. This is where you can end up. Now, of course, the whole purpose of this is not just to tell you that money is dangerous, but it is to help us to see the path to freedom. Because following Jesus is actually freedom from these things that do enslave us. That's God's great desire for us. So how are we free of the true power of money? And I think the answer is actually in that story of the rich young ruler. Three things. First of all, first of all, we need to assume you are in trouble. We are in trouble. I'm in trouble when it comes to money. The starting point actually is to assume that you struggle with greed. See what Jesus says to them after he leaves? He says, what is impossible with man? He doesn't say what is impossible with a rich man. He says with man. The reason is, of course, because again, ultimately the problem is not the man's possessions, but his heart, which his possessions inflame and feed and and slowly rot away, but it's his heart. And you know what that means? That it's actually every person's problem. Every one of us is intrinsically built now as a result of sin to struggle with greed and possessions. Jesus says earlier in Luke 12, my clicker is really not, there we are, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. People use the, the verse in her spotlight segment Life does not consist in the abundance of possession. Now, you can be greedy for other things apart from possessions, but don't write off. Don't write off what the Bible's saying about the stuff that we have, the money that we accrue. That is the thing that Jesus is talking about here and warning us against. Watch out and be on guard against those things, against the money that you accrue. Now, maybe you think to yourself, oh, maybe I, I don't struggle with I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. This is a universal warning. And the starting point, actually, to a path to freedom is to, to understand, to assume that you're in trouble in this area. Let me play a hypothetical for you. Imagine your accountant calls you on Monday morning. He says, 
she says, I've looked at your accounts, just got a call from the bank, I've verified it, someone has credited you $10 million. How would you respond? Now, let me flip it. Say she, ca- she calls you, your accountant calls you, and she says, oh, I've, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry to do this, it's going to wreck your week or your year. I've checked your accounts, I've verified it with your creditors. Your accounts have been drained and you only have $1,000 left in them. How will you respond? Now, if you will respond with a strong emotion, I want to suggest to you that money has some kind of power over you. And you're probably thinking, but who wouldn't? And that's exactly my point. That is exactly my point. We are all under the power of money. We have to assume that's our starting point when it comes to our wealth and our possessions. Secondly, firstly, assume that you're in trouble. And secondly, I've put these, I'm just checking the wording because I actually put these in your booklet. Start to give more and more of your stuff away. Assume you're in trouble. Secondly, start to give more and more of your stuff away. See how Jesus confronts the idol in the man's heart. He says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, he's, he's, he's being hyperbolic because he really wants to bring to the fore what is maybe buried very deep in this man's heart because he's got all the usual defences against it, as in he's got moral righteousness. You know, he can cite a whole heap of laws that he's complied with. Uh, he's, he's approaching Jesus with an inquisitive heart. These are all the things that we normally cite in order to avoid being confronted by Jesus, right? Oh, I'm an explorer. Good if you are, but that's not the end of the story. Oh, I'm someone who follows what Jesus says, right? He, he, he says it, I have a hyperbolic statement to really get to the core, but I think within it is still wisdom for us. Start to give more and more of your stuff away. See, at the end of this series, if our giving does not increase by 1%, actually, I will be mildly disappointed, but I will not be disappointed. That's not the purpose of this. If the church's, sorry, if the church's offertory doesn't increase by 1%, I will not be disappointed. But what I want to see is everyone's generosity increase. Give it away. Part of the reason is this lies at the very purpose for which we were given all these things by God at the start, to share them and to give them away, not to store them up. And if you give it away, if you're willing to give it to the needs of another person, it's less likely you will use it to feed your own needs and desires. Assume you're in trouble to start to give more and more of your money away. And thirdly, Claim the true wealth that's in offer for you. Claim the true wealth that's on offer for you. You know, there's two rich young rulers in this story. One of them goes away sad. The other one is the king of kings. This story is is remarkable because here is this man, he's standing before Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one for whom all things were created. He's the one for whom everything will be at his footstool. He's the one for whom all things are his inheritance. He will come on the clouds in glory. 
His wealth is beyond your imagination. And he comes as a carpenter into the world. He gives it away for your sake. And he gives it away to welcome you in. He's calling this man. He knows his heart. He knows already. He knows, I suspect, all of the hypocrisy of his compliance with the Old Testament law. And yet he still says to him, come and follow me. And Jesus is calling you too to come and follow him, not on the basis of your wealth and possessions or even on the basis of how you use them. He's calling them on the basis of his own desire to give away his wealth, to give away his wealth. And Jesus leaves a great principle for his disciples who, having seen all of this happen, are slightly gobsmacked. He says to them, Truly I tell you, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, you will never regret in eternity following me. You will never regret it. He says, you will not wake up one year in a thousand years' time and think, I should have held on to that thousand dollars. He says, you will never regret giving it up for me. Well, um, Becky Manley Pivot tells this great story of a beggar and a prince. I don't know if I've used it before. Anyway, bear with me. But the beggar sitting on the street. He sees another beggar further up the road to whom a prince has just ridden up on his horse. The prince looks down at the beggar and his bowl, which has some coins in it, talks to him briefly, which can't be overheard, and then reaches down grabs the coins, put them in his pocket, and put something in the bowl. The beggar sees this, sees the prince riding towards him, quickly grabs his bowl, empties all but one coin, puts it back down. Prince rides up to him and says, I want to be generous to you. So he reaches down, takes the coin, replaces it with a diamond, rides off. Beggar just looks at him and thinks, if only I'd given him my all. You see, Becky Manlet Pippet's point is, when you follow Christ, you never regret giving up the things you have for him. You never will regret that. He will always give you far more than you realize or deserve. And this is a principle at the heart of the gospel. And so, my, my friends, I want to encourage you to claim the wealth that's on offer from the true king. Claim that. And as you claim that, as you really believe that that's what's on offer for you, you will have less and less trouble giving away the rest of the things that you have accrued in your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the warning about the power of money and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us a rich appreciation of your inheritance earned for us by the Lord Jesus. And as we see the, the, the fullness of what you offer us in the gospel, you would free us to, to generously hand over more and more the things that we have for the sake of others and for the sake of you.
Jesus' name. Amen.